family and friends, they were the ones who encouraged me that, you know, you definitely should do this. But on a professional level, there was other people kind of going, that's you're just wasting money. Buy more property, buy another house, well, you know, like everybody else was doing. Buy the second home. I was like, ah, no, I'm going to build a zoo. That's James Hennessy, founder and director of the National Reptile Zoo here in Ireland. He's an inspiring example of someone who followed their passion, experiencing different adventures along the way, all of which contribute to a social enterprise which truly makes an impact in the world, all over the world. And one of the insights that struck me when I was speaking to James was the realization that the more he followed his passion and did things for the sheer enjoyment of doing them, the more his business flourished. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. And I have a wonderful guest. Well, I say this about every guest, but this is a particularly interesting guest I have for you today. And we met, well, we met a while ago, but we ended up having, we were at a friend's house over Christmas and having a few drinks and we ended up having a chat. And I'm kind of like saying, beware anyone who has long conversations with me for now, because you'll end up being on this podcast. So today we meet James Hennessy, who is the founder, creator, builder, director of the National Reptile Zoo. Welcome, James. Oh, I was thanks. Good. <laughs> no pressure there at all. <laughs> Not at all. No, it was a great conversation. And then we just followed up recently as well because I had to remember everything <laughs> that we had talked about. So, um, yeah, lo- lots of waffle in between it. No waffle at all. I love the story and the the story I love. I think the thing that has struck me most because it's something that comes up for clients with me of people who change careers and try to find their path and often leave go of stuff that's been in the past thinking they can't bring it with them. And it really struck me it's like everything that you've done in your life has brought you to here. I even said this to you yesterday and you're like, it didn't feel like that at the time, Finola. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's really interesting and you have an interesting perspective on how we find our passion. But let's, maybe you could start the story because how your story started was you said you were a weird little boy <laughs> <laughs> and you collected reptiles. So will you yeah. tell t- Tell us the story. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking every little boy is a weird little boy. That's what little boys are. That's what we do best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose as a, like, as a kid, I'd have, uh, I'd, I had, my parents, my grandparents were always into animals anyway. You know, I think it was just, I think, is that an Irish thing? I think we're all part of it. We're, we're nicely connected to the earth, I think. Um, but I, I just wanted the, the more unusual stuff. Yeah. And I just not reptiles to, normally. <laughs> not reptiles, yeah, and, and they weren't really available, but uh, I, I ended up, kind of wrangling my my way uh, to getting the local garden centre to actually ship in some reptiles for me. Um, and, uh, they, you know, they called on the landline and I had to go into the local city to on the bus at about eight, nine years old to pick them up because they wouldn't open the box. And I'd read about it in a book and stuff. And uh, that's kind of how I started. And I just got fascinated then from that point. You know, I was just 
you know, that I won't say it took over. I just, it was just the, the unusual and the weird and this stuff that's, you know, that we only see on TV is actually tangible. It's actually a thing, you know, like from, you know, from there to it's just kind of stuck with me. And it, 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 it wasn't something I, I it wasn't a, a direction I aimed for, but it definitely stuck there forever and still has, obviously. <laughs> that makes sense. But you're also talking about you rewired your whole bedroom or something as well. Yeah. So like, I mean, like I, I would have gotten turtles and newts and salamanders and things like that. And at the time there was no internet back in the day and you would get mail order catalogs from, from the UK and I would uh, try and buy what I thought was the right equipment for for these animals. And my, my granddad would loan me the money and I'd, I'd send off the postal order and the equipment would come and it came like not in intact in different bits and pieces. And then I suddenly learned how to how to wire up lighting systems when I was about nine or 10 years old. Uh, actually, I didn't. I actually made a mistake first, lots of mistakes, and I blew all the fuses in the house wiring up this big system that I thought I thought it was wearing it the right way because there was no Google, like you know, there was no way of finding this out. So I found out the hard way. I got electrocuted quite a few times. Uh, never good when you're leaning over a fish tank. <laughs> but, but yeah, I remember my parents going crazy because there was uh, like, "What's after going? What's he done now?" <laughs> and yeah, you know. So I was just trying to just kind of learned <laughs> it went up pretty rapidly. Um, but yeah, there was stuff that I thought was uh, was normal for me. I, like I didn't see that as different. I didn't think it was it was unusual. You know, I thought it was okay. This this is this is what you do. You have to get this. You know, you get some some wires. You put this together. So everybody must be doing the same as me. I thought. But it meant you were a natural problem solver. Yeah, it would be. I would be absolutely. Yeah, but uh, and I think it comes from curiosity. So it doesn't come from the. The, the ability to problem solve, I think, uh, well, I, I would have learned it as opposed to kind of being born with it. So I, I was the guy, I was the kid who took everything apart. Uh, usually I learned that I problem solved because I had no choice because I broke something. It was usually that I, I damaged something or I broke it. So then my dad's a mechanic, um, you know, so it all bits of engines and cars at the back. And I was always tearing away and wondering what did what. And if I took this apart, what would happen? And you know, if I put this here, what would happen? And, and I learned. So it, the problem solving was a, a kind of a side effect of the curiosity more than anything else, I think. So many people will break something and not try to fix it. Yeah, yeah. No, and I don't know, is that a case of somebody else comes in and fixes it for them or they've been conditioned to think mm. that they can't fix it and that they shouldn't fix it. And if it's broken, it's uh, it's not mm. to them or it's not, it's not within their realm to be able to fix it which is like absolutely not the case where I mean, we can all do everything, I think. That's my belief anyway, if we try hard enough. Except maybe surgery. I won't give that a shot. <laughs> okay, good. So then you decided you had this bit of an adventurous spirit as well that seemed to grow and you decided, in our conversation, you made a choice to actually join um, the Royal Marine Commandos and then ended up in... Norway, Belize, Northern Ireland, and the former Yugoslav Republic. Yeah, I mean, it, it was um, kind of a means to an end. So, like, uh, like mm. it was, it was when I was a kid, um, I would have uh, obviously the, the interest in animals was stronger than anything. And I thought, first of all, I could join the, yeah. the veterinary corps in the UK, and that's what sent me that direction. Also, our family have quite a bit of history with the with the UK military. Um, so I went for the. I was thought I'd go for the veterinary corps, and I thought, oh, look, you could actually do this instead. Yeah. And um, the adventure side of things, kind of overtook the interest in animals and so yeah I went for I thought well what's the best way to see the world mm. and get a, to you know to have the most adventurous life possible and that that seemed like the option for me 
So I went down that road. So um, it turned out to be not not the road I wanted to go down, yeah. but it 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 definitely um, shaped and helped for sure, as everything does in life. I think. Um, yeah. So that I didn't stay there. So I moved on from that. So I came out of there. Um, I kind of uh, I, I kind of floated about a bit. wasn't sure what I was doing. Trying to do, you know, became. Uh, I I was an adventure sports instructor, so I used to teach because I'd i gotten all these different skills. Um, I used to teach kayaking, rock climbing. I was a mountain leader, um, sailing instructor, windsurfing instructor, and so you know you come out you with these skills, and le- I had a lot of leadership skills and expedition leading skills, and uh, so you know trying to find work in that realm, um, and not really knowing what I wanted to do in life. I still, I'll be honest, I still don't know what I want to do in life. <laughs> but uh, not knowing at the time what I wanted to do. I think you're doing it. So, well, I, I'm, I'm doing some of it. Like it def- there's always more, for sure. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, when it, when I came out then trying to find trying to find what I wanted to do and just kind of gaining extra skills and, and doing all different things and and then trying to keep the wolf from the door because you gotta you gotta survive. You gotta live and eat and pay rent and pay for your car and your whatever other bits and pieces you want. So you know, so I had to. You know, bite the bullet and actually get an actual job. And so I started working in the winter. I started working in the construction industry. Well, during the summer, I would do the adventure sports kind of stuff. And uh, and then, yeah, one thing led to another. And that became then a, a building company. Because I realized that there was a, mm. you know, there was quite a need. At the time, it was, this would have been um, early 2000s. Yeah, around 99, actually 2000. And when I started into some of the building work, and actually a bit earlier, maybe 98. And it was a, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was, you know, the building thing was really kicking off in Ireland, as you, as I'm sure you can remember. And, you know, there was a need that the money was there. I was, it turned out I was quite good at, because I, I was good at taking things apart, putting them back together, again, problem solving, you know, building for me. And I, I would be, I would be artistic as well a little bit, so I would go by my hands. So I was able to, you know, do a little bit of everything from chippy work to, you know, to, to even, even to, to concrete finishing and everything else. And I then discovered that I could also show other people how to do that. So I set up a you know a building business up in Dublin, and it, that just took off because of it with the county tire, and that kind of uh, from there, and on we went. And uh, yeah, so like it wasn't I, I loved it. I'll be honest with you, I didn't. It was tough work, um, and it was actually satisfying because you're for me it was creating things, you know. So I was given kind of a greenfield sites, and I would I was I eventually became project manager. Uh, which I know I was not qualified to do, but I was able to do. So, uh, you know, given the Greenfield site and to be able to suddenly turn that into this big industrial complex, you know, using, you know, being given a set of drawings, team of people, bringing in more subbies and the organization of it actually I enjoyed. And there was a lot of pressure by the time, but it was, uh, I definitely enjoyed doing it, but it was just not quite enough for me as such. And meanwhile, you're still collecting reptiles and amphibians like that wasn't going away that that never went away yeah we did the love for animals is always there so and, and i was um yeah yeah just just kind of gathering different animals and, and and even the building so like you know to be able to get like these days you can walk into a pet shop and you can get a custom made reptile habitat you know back then you couldn't do that so i, I had to make these habitats and i found a challenge in trying to create a habitat for these animals that I was getting at. And then trying then I realized, you know, actually we don't know a lot about these animals. And that you know, instilled me then to learn more about them. So that was kind of ongoing in the background as I was doing the, the building work. And then whenever I could, I was still traveling quite a bit. So I would have I was still getting a little the odd job here and there doing, 
you know, like there would have been expeditions to be led. People would have still required those skills. So it was kind of getting into that at the same time and working with downloads in the field. And I kind of, uh, so that, that that was always kind of there as a, you know, passion. Like the, the building thing was, it was interesting, it was enjoyable and it was making a lot of money. But the, you know, when it was to be in the field and working with the animals was the, you know, I was loving, loving that, like, yeah, for sure. And so I love this story that you said that collection was growing and it was in your granddad's house. And then people would see all these red lights <laughs> in the back of the house. <laughs> yeah. And But they'd want to come and get you to show them the the reptiles. They were, and that seemed to grow. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So it was like, you know, like I would have started off with some, the odd tank here and there in the house. And then there was, the animals got bigger, the 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 habitats got bigger. I ended up building these units out in the back garden and I, you know, loads of double glazed glass on the outside. They, they, glow, they, you know, the glow off them was like, you'd see it for miles. Obviously everybody from around heard like, you know, there's that crazy guy in Callan who's got those crocodiles in the back of his house. Like, do you want to go down and see him, you know, and friends would call in and see the crocs and, you know, see the snakes and the pythons and different things. And then I'd have, uh, you know, friends of friends would kind of call in and say, oh, you know, Johnny or Mary said this down, said you got these and I brought some of the kids down, they're, they're mad to see the animals and, you know, I, I, mm. and I loved them because they were coming in and I couldn't help but talk about the animals because I was, you know, passionate about it. And then I discovered that, mm. you know, they, yeah, people's interest in these animals was like, they were they were as fascinating as I was. You know, people were, when they sell mm. the animals, they're like, they, they just wanted to know more as well. And I was happy to give them the mm. information and, you know, and then I realized that, you mm. know, you can actually, you can show these animals in a better way and, you know, people really walk out of there with something. You know, they they walked out of the back of my granddad's house with knowledge and an actual be- better respect for these animals than they had walking in, which was a, you know, for me it was a huge thing. When did it hit you this idea of conservation and this the importance of educating people? When yeah. did that hit you? I don't think there would have been. I don't think there was one moment as such. You know, it was. Um, I think, I, to be honest, I, I probably would have had the zoo open at that point before that actually mm. actually kind of dawned on me. Uh, especially yeah. for, from the, I think the the importance of it. Like, you know, I was, while well, I was passionate about it and I was, you know, thrilled to get the message across, um, the importance yeah. of what I was actually doing wasn't, it, it didn't really register. Um, I think probably one of the first times it registered is when we had a, uh, a, a grown man came into me in his mid-twenties and he had finished his zoology degree and he was headed mm. to the Antarctic uh, mm. to work with seals, mm. uh, leopard seals, I think it was. And he was, and it turned out that the only reason he was doing that was because as a child, he called into the back of my granddad's and the inspiration of what what I was doing and, you know, and he kind of followed what I was doing throughout and the building of the zoo. And he called in a few times, I, I didn't realize. And that's what wow. sent him to college. And now he was actually on the ground, you know, working with these species. And it turned out that there was loads of other people like that as well. And that kind of was like, oh, wow, that was like a bit of an epiphany. Oh, I have chills now. Yeah, it was it was incredible for me, like, to kind of go, geez, I'm actually, you know, this is, you know, I've, I've not just affected this guy's life, but he's also gone back and he's now, you know, actively working on the ground. This guy is feeding back into conservation. And that's when, that's when it kind of, you know, that really then pushed me forward, you know. I mean, that was wow. a, a big moment, I think. And he's still, he's yeah. still which is great. <laughs> he's a, I think his, uh, his nickname, or if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but he's something like uh, Dr. Seal Poo or something. I can't remember what he's, uh, <laughs> not the most glamorous, but he's doing an incredible job. Like, you know what I mean? He's a, 
you know, and, and there's loads of other people like that who've, who've come and gone over the years. It makes me feel old in fairness sometimes. Because <laughs> they're like, but you yeah, made a difference. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's suddenly like what I was doing was it wasn't just for me. It wasn't just for something I loved doing. It wasn't just to keep me off the streets. It was actually having a huge kind of a global impact. You know, that was a uh, powerful. So let's just take you, you then decided, you came to a, a crux, you know, granddad's house is filling up <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. you you had to make a decision because it was starting to cost money. And you mentioned that you had to kind of use nephews or something to mind them when you were out yeah, traveling. So brother, you, had, you yeah. came to a point where you had to decide what to do. Yeah, it was um, like he was, uh, my, my younger brother was kind of, because I was building most of the time. I always flat mm. out, you know, um, so then the collection was huge. The collection turned into a full-time job looking after these animals and they weren't making money. They weren't there to make money. They were there because I was studying them. I was interested in them. I was trying to breed them and do different things and learn about, about them. So in order to feed them, like my brother was helping out, other family were helping me as well. Um, and it was like, these don't, there's a lot of money going into these, you know, because I'm literally trying to, I'm trying to keep my brother going, trying to feed them. The heating was crazy. And my granddad was not too impressed every time the electricity bill came in. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was a case of, you know, these guys have to kind of make money. And I thought, actually, well, why can't I just do what I'm doing and just charge people and just do it at a commercial level? And uh, so, yeah, so I went for this. So I, I, I was lucky in that the just before the bust, it was around 2005, I, I could actually, because I was working from the ground up with the building game, I could see that the jobs, before we were turning down jobs, and I could see that the jobs, the, the the offer of the next job, the next year's job, they were starting to slow down. I could see something that was kind of like, just not, wasn't it? I was like, yeah, it's not, it's not, it doesn't look like it's as busy as it was. I thought this could be a good time to, you know, maybe I can build a zoo now while they still have, because I had a few quid coming in from the, from the construction industry. So I decided well, I'd start, I'd start building a zoo when we'd chance it. And I'd started as, as small as I possibly could, because I was, a lot of people said it wouldn't work. I'd look, most family and friends, said they were the ones who encouraged me that, you know, you definitely should do this. They were fantastic. Uh, but the, uh, on a professional level, there was other people kind of going, no, that's, you're just wasting money. Buy more property, buy another house, but, you know, like everybody else was doing. Buy the second home. I was like, ah, no, I'm going to build a zoo. I think a bit more crack in that. But I love that, that you listened to yourself. Yeah, it was like, I've, I don't think I've ever done, well, you know, like anybody, when you're making money, it's great. And you want to make money, you, you want to be successful. But measuring your success through the money coming in, it's, it's, it, that was never a thing for me, you know. So I, I, I didn't mind the the gamble, you know. If I if I wasn't going to make more money, it didn't go right, you know. I'd I'd, I'd work it out again, problem solving. I just I'd find another way, and you know, we'd we'd, we'd work it out. It it always works itself out. You find a way, you know. You work your way around it. Okay, so let's go to so you you uh, found a location, yeah. Decided to make it a commercial enterprise. What was that like at the start? You because it was in a small town yeah. in Kilkenny. It wasn't even in the city of Kilkenny. It was in Goran, which is a small place. Yeah, yeah, just in the little village. And it was it was made because you know, property prices were quite expensive. I was trying to find somewhere that was, you know, feasible. That because I, I well, well, it was well, it was taking mm. a risk at the same time. It was a calculated risk. I wasn't you know doing something stupid. I was going to go okay, you know, I can, I can, we can try it at this level. Um, it was on the main Dublin Waterford Road at the time. So the location, even though it was kind of a little bit weird and out of the way, it seemed right. Looking back, it wasn't. Um, yeah. As we moved to Kenny, the footfall, massively different. But um, 
Yeah, so so I, I set it up and I started building. I did bite off a little bit more than I could chew because I would be a slight control freak. So I ended up doing all the building. So I was running the company in Dublin. Mm. Um, we drive down the evening time. Mm. You know, I'd finish work at half five, six, drive from, from just inside Dublin, uh, hit Gorn, have a quick cup of tea and get into building again and work there till about uh, maybe 10 or 11 at night. You know, bit of block thing, you know, cheaper work, building the exhibits, the habitats. And uh, it took about, I'd say about a year longer than it was supposed to. I thought I'd throw this thing up real quick. <laughs> that was, that turned out not to be the case. Like, yeah. um, so it took quite a bit, quite a long time, you know. So I ended up costing kind of more in, you know, rent and everything else. But I, I, I was doing all the work myself. So, yeah. you know, now, obviously you know, I, I'd help from friends and stuff and, and family with some of the, the bigger tasks every now and again. But um, yeah, so it, that that was a great learning curve. Would you have done it differently, though? I might have a little. Um, I mean, the the problem was that some of it was necessity as well, because trying to get somebody to do the work I needed done in the way I needed it done, because there's a little artistic element to it as well. And it was a for me, it was a bit of design and build. So as I was as I was building, I wasn't hundred percent sure. I wasn't working off drawings. You know, I, I'm laying out these things inside. You know, I, I'm moving habitats around. It's like I look at it and I'll have to go away. And two days later, I come back and look at it again going, no, that's not going to work. I need to move it again. So to try and to try and get somebody else in to do that, I don't know, would that be feasible? Um, I definitely would have gotten more help, I think, and, and paid. Because, you know, if I'd have paid for more help at certain times, um, as in paid workers, you know, I would have sped it up and probably saved more than a lot of and maybe brought it to a slightly better standard. And Because, I, you know, you know yourself, you're doing something yourself. It's kind of like, yeah, we'll get this done. And then as you get to the end, it was like, I oh, just, just, I just, that'll do it. That'll be grand now. I'll leave it at that. And you never quite get it as well, as well as you could if you were paying somebody else to do it. So, but not, I wouldn't have changed it much. What was it like having the first customers walk in the door? Oh, it was yeah, crazy. I was actually bricking it. Absolutely bricking it. Like, and of all the things I've done in my life, like I've done, I've done some stupid stuff. Like I've done, you know, I don't even know where to start. You know, and I've been in some horrible situations you know, where, where you should be scared and I haven't been. And I, one of my most scariest times was sitting at that counter waiting for a car to pull in to the front of the yard and come in and charge the first customer. Because I hadn't dealt with people like that at a retail level before. And I was like, and I, I'll be honest, I'm not, at the time especially, I was very much, I was so, I, I still am the other time, a little bit socially awkward until I kind of get going. Yeah. But well, I was, I was, little, I was scared. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually remember visiting and I think it's when you expanded Gorin again, because it was a much bigger place. I think you took over the front piece as well that you were explaining to me. So obviously your, right, yeah. all your stuff with lear learning cover and customers totally sorted itself out because I remember going to the, the middle sized uh, zoo that you built. So the second stage, because he, we brought Sean and I think he was about six or seven. And I remember kind of the amazing thing of him having this enormous snake around his neck. Like it was so, he could just, it was so amazing. And you still do that. You have it in in the thick of it where the kids and adults get to be up close and personal with the animals. Like it was amazing. But I have to share with you the other one, which is apart from the snake was crazy. And I also held the snake as well. But I always remember this owl at the top of the building. Oh, oh boy. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He was the scariest. <laughs> I was more scared by. Gee, it's a female. Gee, yeah. apologies. 
Is she yes. still alive? <laughs> She is, yeah. Yeah, Bubo's in my house, yeah. Bubo lives uh, with a raccoon, or beside the raccoon, next door in the house, uh, back where the kids are. Um, yeah, she's uh, she was one of my first zoo trades. Uh, I traded her for another zoo. A zoo contacted me and said they wanted baby tortoise, and I was breeding tortoise. Yeah. And I went, okay, cool. And we don't we, we don't tend to sell stuff in the zoo in the zoo world. You can you trade because it's for conservation, so yeah. you don't want to put a monetary value yeah. on an animal's head. Um, so, you know, you give Zeus something, if they've got something, they'll give you something in return. And they were like, uh, we don't have any reptiles, really. You know, this is kind of our first reptile. And we went, okay. So, so what, what do you have? Because we, we've, we've just sprayed uh, Eurasian eagle owls. And I went, oh, oh, I'll have one of those. Yeah, that'd be great. I just stupid. But, you know. But oh, I, wow. Yeah. But she had, I have her. So she, she was like six weeks old when I got her. Yeah. And she's, uh, she's, yeah, she's great. She's trained. She flies to my hand. She's fantastic. Beautiful creature. Absolutely beautiful. But yeah, not a, not a reptile. But no, but so freaked out and amazed. And I went back because I wanted to see her again, you know? So yeah, like really struck me. Yeah, she tends to be, we kind of kept her there if I was gone away, if I was gone on expedition or if I was uh, doing some field work. Um, we had a kind of place for her there that the lads would look after her while it was gone. And then she came back to, she's got a huge, big free-flying aviary where she actually lives normally. Wow. So she's in this massive big thing where she, yeah, she gets kind of does her own thing. To be honest, she's quite lazy and tends to run towards you to get her food as opposed to fly. Everybody thinks birds love flying. They don't. It's uh, it's energy expenditure. So if they can find an easier way, they will. Wow. <laughs> Let's move to some of the interesting, one of the most interesting things I love because I talk a lot about purpose and mission when I'm with clients, because we've talked about yeah. passion, but your passion has evolved into purpose, which is this conservation purpose. And, and it really struck me in all our conversations that everything is lined up with that conservation in mind. Like you truly live it. And it really did strike yeah. me. So you're involved in going to places like Sri Lanka, Uganda, one particular story always struck me, which was this village in Uganda that crocodiles hadn't lived there for 50 years. And your work was involved in helping the villagers understand how to live alongside these crocodiles. Yeah, that's uh, that's ongoing. So I got, oh, I'm actually going back over there in April. So we've got still got ongoing issues. Yeah. So it's on Lake Edward, a little place called Katwa Village. Mm. And um yeah, historically, crocs disappeared there. Actually, it's more than 50. It's, it's closer to, I think it's, uh, uh, could be 90 years wow. since the last recorded crocodile was there. Wow. And they appeared again then as babies, maybe 40, 30, 40 years ago. And so baby crocs didn't make any difference to the locals. They didn't know any difference. Mm. you know. And then suddenly, baby crocs become big crocs. I know big crocs are breeding and there's a huge population of other crocodiles. And other crocodiles have no problem taking people. You know, if you're if you're a person, you get onto the water to drink, your food, simple as that. And uh, like the majority of places in Africa, they will have, you know, they have coping mechanisms and they can deal with crocs and they, you know, they understand how crocs work and they can coexist. Usually that's not always the case, mm. but in this area, they just have no, you know, they've got zero concept as to how they can get on. And, you know, they, they rely on the water. They need, they got to need the water for washing, for you know, for drinking water, for agriculture, they, they have to have use of that water. So, you know, they've got to go to the water and they go to the water in their dinner, unfortunately. Yeah. So what we don't want to see, obviously, is we don't want to see them wiping out the entire croc population in the area. Yeah. Especially because it's such an unusual thing that these crocs have just 
you know, by themselves have reemerged. The locals are under, you know, as humans are, we find uh, excuse, not excuses, like uh, conspiracy theories. They think that the different governments have dropped these crocodiles in, that mm. there's, uh, you know, that there's in- industry has dropped the crocodiles in and they shouldn't be there and so on. Um, but, you know, so we were trying to learn a bit more about the population of crocs, but at the same time, we don't want to see, you know, there's just some horrific stories because like, we do a lot of work amongst the village and you've got, like we, we had one older gentleman, maybe in his late fifties, uh, and we were chatting to him about an attack where he'd lost half of his leg and he's a huge hole going out of his side. As about maybe about eight years ago, mm. and we were going over the attack and just just trying to learn a little bit more about what you know what the crocs are doing there and how mm. people are getting hit. And um, he he was just tell us the story. He went off to hospital and you know they they took him to hospital in the back of a couple of kind of like a tuk tuk kind mm. of thing, like a little small motorbike, mm. and. Um, on the way back from the hospital, his 14-year-old daughter was getting his room ready mm. because he'd been in the hospital for quite a bit. Mm. So he was coming back home, being released from the hospital. The daughter went down to the lake's edge to get water for him. Uh, she she got taken. She was gone. So it was... Uh, yeah. So it's tough work. Yeah. So you're trying to deal with the people and you're trying to deal with the crocs, you know. So it's a... Uh, but, you know, you, you can make a difference. That's the thing. You know, you can... We can actually genuinely help these people and... At the same time, help the crocs. Like it's a it's a tough road, for sure. But it is a tough road because the bias would be to take a gun and shoot the croc, whereas you're trying to live up to the purpose of, you know, conserving them. But the, I I tell you actually, just on on that on that note, um, there is like, you know, there is an argument for sustainable hunting that if if the crocs population is incredibly prolific and really, really healthy. And the locals can actually make a living and see the animals as being beneficial. You know, crock farming and crock meat. You know, so there is that potential as well. But we've got to learn, you know, the, the, the population may not be healthy. Mm. You know, so you can't just make that decision. But I mean, you know, there's, there's, you, you can't just go in blinkered. The other, the other side to it as well, like we, and I teach quite a bit when it comes to conservation work, we'll get students fresh out of college and they're off to save the world and they're going to go over to for, foreign countries and they're going to help all the animals and all the animals must live and you can't do this and you can't do that. And then you go and you talk to people and they go, well, this, this guy's child is starving to death. If they don't hunt and feed and they provide for their kids, these, this, this family dies. They die. You know, you can't tell them they can't hunt. You can't tell mm-hmm. them that, you know, you can't shoot that animal. You know, you've got to either find them another way or you find a way to make it work. So there's compromise. You know, mm-hmm. there is, you know, there's, a fine, there's an understanding there that if you're involved in conservation, that it's not all fluffy kittens and save the world and don't don't kill any animal. You know, there's 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 a nitty gritty rough side to it as well. You know, and you, you need to be, you know, accepting of that too. So it's, Which yeah. calls to mind the fact that you are one of the experts um, for conservation for the UN. You were commissioned as that because of that work you've done in so many countries. Yeah. Yeah. So the IUCN, so it's like the, the UN equivalent for animals, which is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. So they're the guys who decide what's red listed, what's, you know, is the panda in danger, or did, you know, does the koala need protecting? You know, these, these are the guys who who decide that. So yeah, so I got commissioned as a member for them for the Crocodile Specialist Group. So we're kind of, uh, we're called upon then, yeah, to make make calls on, along those lines. Amazing journey. I love what you're doing now, which is you're going to the, in every stage of this business, which is passion, but also a social enterprise, all of the above, 
you've always taken it to the next level, to the next level. And it's not just like everything feeds itself. So you use your learning in the zoo, you expanded the zoo, you're bringing education in place. You're actually around the world helping crocodile and, and reptile populations around the world and learning. And now you're exploring this next piece, if you want to share with everybody that you're taking conservation to the next level. Yeah, I mean, trying to uh, d- trying to tie everything else in, you know, I mean, there's so much tech and, you know, and uh, available these days that it's just not been, it's not been utilised where it could be utilised, you know, and it's uh, it's a shame in some ways. And, and some of that is that it's a little bit of that, that blinkered thinking, I suppose, where, you know, the guys in tech work in tech, they don't work in conservation. The guys in conservation, they work in animals, they don't work with tech, you know, and uh, and same with, with building, with, uh, you know, with IT, with, with everything. Mm. It's all, it's all interlinked, mm. um, socioecology, everything else. Uh, you know, it, you've got to kind of take it all in, in one. Um, and also the difference between academia and being in the jungle, you know, yeah. theoretical stuff about animals and what you read versus how do you... <laughs> walk through the jungle safely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's some of the reason I got into the the more academic side of it, actually. And initially was, you know, I was hired uh, as expedition leader to take people into remote areas for a couple of different expeditions that I was doing. And mm. I discovered I had as much interest and knowledge about the work that the guys I was bringing in there had, but I had the ability to get to places that they couldn't because, mm. you know, I was more skilled and I, I developed skills on, on that, that front. You know, so you get you get the, the like the best in the world. You get the best mm-hmm. of most academic people in the world, and you put them into the into the field where they're supposed to be able to do their work, and they can't do it because they're just they can't function in that environment. You know, and that and that's a separate skill. That's a skill that needs to be developed alongside the academic skill, and is as important because without it, it's then your your qualification is just a little bit of paper that you can wipe your bum with. If you excuse me, we <laughs> fully Gary. Do you know what I mean? It's a but it reminds me of, I did some work a long time ago where we were involved in um, uh, digitizing the early printed works of some of the great naturalists, uh, wonderful uh, early, you know, early works that are in the long room in Trinity College in Dublin and reading the stories of those early naturalists that they come with so many skill sets. They come with a machete in their hand and a paint in the other hand to draw the stories, to draw these hummingbirds is yeah. one thing, you know, all of these animals and creatures so that they can, and also collect samples and study them and all of that, all in one person. Yeah. We have this society that has us so niched down that we don't see how things connect. And you remind me of that idea of the machete yet still Doing the science. Oh, absolutely, piece. yeah. I mean, it's kind of like it's, kind of, it's like Renaissance man died, you know, the guy who could do everything. The artist who was the the, the student, the academic yeah. and and the builder and the inventor, you know, that, they, that, that that's gone yeah. again. We, we've, we seem to have lost that, you know. We've now compartmentalised people and suddenly we, you know, individuals can only do one thing, you know, and that's not what humans are made for or evolved to. You know, we, we've, uh, you know, we've, we're yeah. multifaceted, multi-talented, you know, species. We could, we should be able to do everything, and there's no reason we can't. You know, it's just you've been told you can't, or you've been, you've decided you can't. As I suppose, so we, we do a lot of um, uh, internships, and we bring everyone from um, design students uh, to tourism students mm. to zoology students to veterinary students, and we bring them in because because it's a zoo. It does. It doesn't just. We don't just deal with animals. We've also got to do social media. We've also got to do marketing. 
you know, we've got to deal with the public, you've got customer relations, you've got tourism. You know, we've got, we've actually had um, uh, an interpreter student in from Holland who actually uh, translates all of our info cards and is, uh, and we got them using some tech and using QR codes where you can now scan QR codes on certain cards and it comes up on an app that he's developed. You know, so it's just got loads of different things you can pull in all together. Like, you know, it's trying to bring that back, I think, is really important, you know. Yeah. So the thing that you're exploring now, which is this idea, and it's really feeding that conservation angle, that conservation mission, which is putting, you're tracking the data of all the behaviours and all the inputs or uh, things that impact the reptiles so that you can actually uh, do habitat monitoring remotely. I thought that was amazing. And it's not being done anywhere else. It's not like we're we're, like different zoos are are taking data and they're taking data in different ways and they're taking different data in different ways. And then they have it and then nothing's been done with it. And it's not kind of saved in a format that's kind of, again, all-encompassing, that's kind of, that's usable for all and everybody. So we've uh, a, a guy, Chuck Zayed, who is incredible, who's uh, helped us to develop this um, this habitat monitor. So and it's all done on uh, on kind of a shareware, I'll say for me, what's the phrase again? Open, open source. Open source, <laughs> every time. <laughs> so on all, all open source. So he's he's, uh, he's developed these lovely little boards, which and I've learned a little bit, which is great. You know, that when mm-hmm. he gets that level of tech, it does it does go a little bit beyond me. But um, so we mm-hmm. we we can um kind of plug in a kind of myriad of sensors where we take in um, air temperature, humidity, um, light levels, um, air pressure. Uh, obviously, that everything is time stamped and it's continuously and it's uploading it to the cloud. At the same time, we we can input our the weight of the food that we feed the animal, the activity that it's doing at any specific time. Uh, whether we do water change on it, the type of soil, habitat, so everything that's in there. And then we can control the temperature and humidity and we control it in relation to where the animal is from. So what the habitat that is from in the wild, we feed it into that system. And then we've got this massive picture of everything that's going on with that species. So as soon as it does something unusual, as soon as it, it if it mates, you know, if it's uh, if it has babies and or if it if it lays eggs and it, and they don't hatch, you know, even a negative response is still a response. If it does something and something's not mm. right, we can correlate all that stuff back and we can kind of look and go, oh look, that's look what happened here, and you know, there's a spike here and this or this went here, and and then suddenly we're learning that okay, and then we look back in what's happening in the world, even with global warming and things, and kind of go, okay, actually, if if there's a prolonged increase in temperature or the rains go on longer than they should, that this is going to happen in the world and we can kind of predict what's going to happen in the world and, and so on. And then we know what we have to change or how we can help them or how we can fix it. You know, so it's a, uh, yeah, like you can't do that. Just amazing. Technology. You know, that's, that's taking all our tech guys in there to pull that together. And, to, you know, it's, it's amazing. Mm. But also just to reiterate, you're making this available as you're going to share all of this in workshops with zoos from around the world. And it's us and you're making this available for free as part of your conservation mission. I think that's, I love that you're doing that. You're so on purpose all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so something like that, like, I mean, you know, to turn it into a product, it's just like, like, you know, it'd be a horrible thing to do, first of all, you know, because I mean, the, the purpose of it is conservation. It is animal welfare. It's you're helping the animal, you're helping people. So why would you, you know, why would you charge for that? You know, so, I mean, if we can make it, somebody else can make it as well. So let's show them how to make it and let's, let's, you know, kind of keep moving forward. I'll learn together. 
One last story I'd love you to share because back to this conservation angle, when people come to work for you, it struck me that you make them very aware about that's the mission and that the impact of the conservation, but also the education, that even their attitude to customers coming in, that they are role models, that they are there to inspire the people who visit. I love that you, in your onboarding, you talk to them about, and also I like the story that you said, you hand them a sweeping brush. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Or just hand them a sweeping brush. But yeah, yeah, there's, there's a... No, but as a... <laughs> no, no, no. As in, as in like a... There's a reason why. Reason why, yeah. yeah. And we do it on, on many different levels. But the, yeah, I mean, the, the I suppose the purpose or the, the, yeah, the point would be when we when we get someone on board, it's like they're not, they don't come in here to do a job. They come in here because they're, they want to be involved in one way or another in conservation. Um so if if they don't understand kind of what we do and the impact that we have, and it's like that story of the the chap who came in, you know, as a as a child yeah. and is now working in conservation, yeah. that these guys and girls yeah. who work here for us, you know, as the public come in, they see those as potentially that's what I could be, you know. So they've got to be aware all the time that they are they are the, the future, they, they are impacting and influencing our future just walking around the zoo, just mm. chat to people. You know, so as they talk to them, as they take animals out mm. for them, even as they do their daily work. So we don't just, you know, even if the guys are, we, we make sure everybody's out on show. All the all of our staff are, you know, they interact with the public, If whether they're sweeping the floor, cleaning a window or catching a crocodile. They're interacting with the public and they're explaining to them and they're talking to them, they're chatting to them in a very Irish way. And we, we get a lot of Europeans and non-Irish people working for us, but we turn them, we make them Irish. Mm. We, make them, we make them chat to the public. <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite hard actually for some, some um, you know, so, some of the different uh, nationalities that we've had in, they, they've, they, they struggle a little bit with it, with that process. It's kind of like, well, don't these people mm. just want to come in and see the animals and go again? No, no, like, no, no. They, they they come in here. We gotta we gotta indoctrinate them into into understanding what you know the what what the purpose of conservation yeah. is. So we make sure that they all the staff know that. But like yeah, the thing is the sweeping brush. I mean, if it's a uh, yeah, everyone wants to come in and play with uh oh yeah, I'm gonna go. In. They they've seen Steve Irwin or they've seen whatever, and they're like, I'm gonna work in the reptile zoo. I'm gonna be resting yeah. crocodiles. I'm gonna be catching snakes all day. And you're yep, yeah, no, you're not. You're sweeping the floor, mate. Mm. First off, and if you can't do that right, you know, then we'll yeah. see. But you you got you got to get the basics at least. Like you know, it's um. I, but I just think it's such an important message. Yeah, completely. And it's and and everybody here does everything. So we've got we've actually got two new staff who started this week. Uh, one chap from Italy and one chap from Spain. And um, they're the, the on their second day they were trained how to use the till on reception. Now these are two zookeepers, and they're going to use that till. They're going to work on reception. They're going to they're going to talk to people coming in the door, and that gives them a bit of appreciation for the for the guys who do the admin work. But it also gets them talking to the customers and they can, you know, they get to see it, again, multifaceted, that they can see everything that's going on and they can, you know, they understand the customer's experience from the minute they walk in the door because they're part of it from there. They're, as the customer was out and says goodbye, that they're also there, you know, the same the same zookeeper. And then they're going in, they're working with crocs and they're working with venomous snakes, you know, so it's it goes... And I'm not going to say it goes from the bottom to the top because we don't look at it that way. We look at it as a straight linear line, you know, not a, not an up and down. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's across because because yeah. guys on the guys on reception are as important as the guys doing doing the venomous stuff. You know. Yeah, everything contributes. Yep. What would you like people to walk away with today? Um, I think the the multitude of experience I think is is what. 
people really need to kind of get their heads around. I think if you, you know, not to be blinkered, not to try and, not to see that there's one, that there's, there isn't one track, I suppose, to get to where you want to go. First of all, it's better if you don't know where you want to go. Because if you know where you want to go, you're going to miss loads of stuff. You know, if you, if you, if you've got a target, if you've got a destination in mind, you're going to miss all the cool stuff on the way. You know, so don't, don't have a destination. Mm. Just see, see how it goes. But there's, a, you know, and take as many side shoots as you can. The more, the longer, more meandering way you can take to get anywhere, the, the, the more experiences you'll have and the more doors open for you. You know, you've suddenly there's opportunities there that you didn't even realize existed until you've gone and taken that, mm. that, that winding road down to who knows where. I think that that would be my Love it. my main message. I think. <laughs> Thank you so much, James. That was just wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about James and the National Reptile Zoo, check out nationalreptilezoo.ie and go and visit it in Kilkenny. It really is worth a trip. It's actually an amazing experience. And if you'd like to support the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. It's a chance to tell me what you love about the show and helps others discover it too. And I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care.